you could have a great idea. You could have a great celebrity. That could be helpful. You could strike the right brand at the right time. And it's been done. I'm not saying that it can't happen. Uh, social media has changed everything. The way we communicate with consumers today is very different from the way we communicated with consumers a long time ago. I still think that for premium brands, storytelling, liquid to lip type of experiences are you know, critical because consumers ultimately want to be associated with brands that look great, that taste great, that have good stories, that have a great celebrity behind them. But it's not, it's not easy. Welcome to the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Turk. Join me as we dive into the personal stories of some of the world's best hospitality professionals. We follow the journey of their ups, downs, and wild turns to find out what it truly takes to make it in the amazing world of hospitality. This episode is brought to you by our podcast partners at Real-Time Reservation. Their inventory management system is best in class for hotels and resorts to manage their non-room inventory. The web-based application allows for creative upselling of overnight and daytime visitors with add-ons and pre-planned packages. Hotel guests and non-guests can reserve cabanas, pool chairs, activities, amenities, excursions, events, day passes, and much more. The real-time reservation platform offers a fully integrated pre-arrival portal where guests are verified through the property management system. Guests can prepay for cabanas and activities through credit card integrations, which are then processed through point of sale. All of our listeners that might be interested in using real-time reservation are welcome to explore the demo at realtimereservation.com. Once again, that's realtimereservation.com. Welcome to another edition of the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. Today, I'm excited to have Philippe Roderer, a top consultant in the beverage industry with over 30 years of experience. Philippe, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me, Steve. Well, Philippe, we always jump in. What was your first job in hospitality? How did you get into this beautiful industry of ours? Well, I think... Um... My getting into this industry is probably tied to, you know, my love of, uh, you know, food and, and wine, which probably started at a very early age. You know, I was raised uh, half French, half American, moved about seven times before I actually settled in New York, went to college here in the U.S. Um, and it was always exposed to food and wine, not the greatest wine, not the greatest food, but there was always great meals around the table. My mother was a great cook. And in terms of wine, you know, in France, we were drinking local local wines for the most part. You know, it started when when we were seven years old, we were allowed to have a half glass of wine at the table wow. mixed with water. And then when we were 11 years old, we were allowed to have our first glass of wine at the table. I got to tell you, it, it actually tasted better with water. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was that like the first time? Were you already used to it because you were at seven or was it when you got it at 11? You're like, wow. You know, I think it was just part of a family even... tradition. It was part of family tradition. My, my, I grew up uh, spending my summers on a farm. My, my grandfather had, you know, cows and uh, chicken and, 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 you know, just basically a working farm. And, and uh, he had a few vineyards. And for the most part, the vineyards were really for the workers on the farm. They made their own wine. But that was also the wine we drank around the table. It wasn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a fun part of the story. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so um, you know, comes, comes New York, uh, you know, I'm 
22 years old. Uh, I, I get started in a food service type of business, spent two years in sales selling this concept to restaurants. Uh, it was a restaurant ticket concept, which is very popular in Europe, where companies who don't have cafeterias give their employees vouchers so that they can go out and eat in neighborhood restaurants. So we were trying to start the same concept, but eventually got a little tired of doing that and saw an ad in the New York Times with a big champagne bottle saying, we're looking for French speaking, two years experience in sales, you know, understanding of wine. And I applied. Yeah, it's and meant for you. That was, was built for you. It was completely built for me. And, and that company was Shefflin and Somerset, which was a, you know, import company for Diageo and what Hennessy. So obviously great brands in that portfolio. And uh, my first week on the job, I always remember it. Uh, I worked with Charles Philippona, who's now president of Philippona Champagne. And he took me around New York uh, to go visit all the French restaurants that he was responsible for. And I think I hit every four-star restaurant in Manhattan, lunch and dinner. Wow. Um, and I wasn't used to that kind of drinking, to tell you the truth. Yeah. <laughs> it was. It started off with, uh, you know, a, a glass of champagne followed by a bottle of wine followed by, you know, a glass of cognac to finish the meal. And that was lunch and dinner every day. And I was like... I don't know if I can oh, take man. this. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> but it was just my initiation. We, we got to, you know, meet all the top um, restaurant owners that he was managing. And I spent close to a year uh, at Shuffle and Somerset before we actually integrated uh, our divisions into the distributor channel. So obviously right now, this is pretty common practice for the large suppliers like Diageo, Pernod Ricard, you know, Bacardi, they all have divisions within the distributor systems. Well, that didn't exist at the time. So uh, we kind of pioneered that. And I joined a distributor uh, business uh, for about a year and a half, mm -hmm. mostly focused on the on-premise and, you know, tried to, you know, kind of change the way they were looking at business because I came from the restaurant side of the business, having bartendered and waited uh, in New York City restaurants doing my my weekend time and uh, subsequently, you know, spent a year and a half working at a distributor business and then had an opportunity to join a company called Veuve Clicquot. And at the time, Clicquot Inc., which the company was called, was very, very small. Mm -hmm. And we had, uh, I think it was three employees in the sales organization. And I was the fourth one to join. Uh, That's amazing. So the team was about seven people all in. Uh, the company was about two years old, and the brand of Clico, I think, sold five or six thousand cases across the U.S. So you started there. Let's say it about in my notes as I'm looking down here, 1991, right? Was 1991. That's mm -hmm. correct. Yeah. And, and Vuv Clico. And so for everyone out there listening, now one of the most popular champagne brands in the world, you were employee number four for that brand on the sales side. Yes, absolutely. on the sales side, it's unreal. So you get there. And you have a long run with them, I think about nine years, if my notes are right here. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about that journey of building up such an iconic brand and being a part of that? Absolutely. For me, Veuve Clicquot was probably my, my brand building uh, you know, business school, to put it that way. Because uh, I never went to business school. I, I graduated actually with a history and economics major. So, But I learned very quickly that you can't be too opportunistic. And you have to really be targeted. And 
you have to be, you know, especially when you're working with, you know, low budgets, you, you have to be really focused. And it's all about, you know, picking your markets, picking your customers, and then, you know, leveraging the relationships that those customers have with their customers to get to those customers. And you got to remember at the time, um, there were very few brands out there. I mean, you, you would go to uh, a bar or a restaurant, they were probably 35 references. So the idea of luxury or premium brands outside from maybe Absolute, which was the first premium brand in the vodka category that mm-hmm. I was ever exposed to, or even Johnny Walker Black, which was kind of a premium to Johnny Walker Red at the time, uh, the premium brand business was pretty much non-existent. It, it was definitely there in Champagne, because uh, Champagne was a premium offering as a whole. But you know, we tried to position Vevclico as the most premium of the non-vintage brands, and subsequently we tried to build that portfolio around Vevclico. You're able to introduce Grand Dame and Vintage and Rosé and all that stuff. But uh, again, that, that that journey was all about you know being very targeted. You know, it started in New York with working with Sherry Lehman and Zaki's and Morel and Astor, uh, and then picking, you know, New York as a market, Miami as a market, Los Angeles as a market, Chicago as a market, focusing our efforts in those places. And then on the restaurant side, you know, developing relationships with the top restaurants so we could get visibility behind the bar, visibility by the glass. And you know, our positioning was always, we wanted to be the most premium non-vintage. So how do we get to be two or three dollars more expensive than, you know, Moite Chardon, for example. That's great. So yeah. when you're going in these places, just to, not, people don't know the brand, right? Because it's such a new brand. How were you explaining it to people? How were you building a story? Was there already a story behind it and creating an image of it? Or was it that came as the brand grew? When yeah, I mean, really the, the brand had a, had a great story. I mean, it had been around since the late 1700s. Uh, you know, the Veuve, the widow, Clicquot, was one of the first great businesses with business women in, in, in France and certainly in Champagne. Uh, so there was this great story about the widow, women leading a great business uh, that we, we kind of took as our, our story. I mean, we, we built that brand around the, the story of the widow, Clicquot, and then we, we had a great package. I mean, that yellow bottle or that yellow label was just, you know, it was, it was in your face. I mean, when you walked into a restaurant, it was very visible. So, you know, we started merchandising. We first of all started developing relationships with restaurants, which means that you don't just go in and, you know, sell in a case, you go in, sell in a case and you go back and you develop a relationship with the ownership, with the staff, you train the staff. And, and, and then you do it over and over again in the next restaurant, the next restaurant. And then you have to go entertain in these restaurants, make sure that you show support. Uh, so, you know, I met a lot of nights out, yeah. a lot of glasses of champagne, but it was super fun. You know, I was 26 years old and I was going around drinking champagne and these great restaurants and these great nightclubs and these great hotels. I mean, couldn't have had a better better life. Uh, but it, it was, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of work. Um, and eventually what happened is we, we created a really strong relationship with that core group of restaurants and retailers. And in order to expand, we had to start looking at, you know, the next, uh, the next accounts. And so, uh, the idea was, you know, you, you, you can't, 
walk away from the relationships that you've built with those top customers, but at the same time, you have to feel you have to make the the the, the second level of customers feel just as important as those top customers. So that was the idea. I mean, what we provided to these uh, great, what I would call, you know, A minus B plus accounts was the same level of service that we provided to our top A accounts. And how, did you, we, how did you do that? Because as you know, work, me working in hotels, I've sometimes helped support a brand new brand, right? And I show them all the love. Sometimes I'm the first hotel mm -hmm. to give it to them. But as they grow, then I don't get the same amount of love, right? And you get, oh, come on. You know, I was around at the beginning. How did you balance it out as you were growing this massive brand? So when you're when you're on your own managing a territory, and and my territory was you know initially New York Metro, and then eventually grew New York Mid Atlantic, and then as it grew into eventually being half the U.S., I mean we did bring on a team to support me in my efforts. So the key was training that team to do exactly what you did, uh, but my responsibilities and calling accounts on a day to day basis, you know, kind of fizzled out and I left that up to my team eventually as I was managing the business. But, but no, it was, it was all about, again, being uh, from a territory standpoint, you know, uh, uh, time management is everything. So, you know, um, I would just, uh, you know, pick New Jersey, for example, and I'd have my route and I'd pop my head into all my retailers and all the restaurants that, you know, supported me. And, and I would do that, you know, four or five times a year. I did the same for Long Island. I did the same for New York City. In New York City, I broke it up by, uh, you know, uh, zip codes. And I'd have my Upper East Side, Midtown, you know, lower downtown uh, areas that I would cover. And I would just basically hit all these accounts. And all they wanted is for you to show face. And then I started developing programs with those restaurants that were, you know, very simple program, but around, you know, seasonal uh, moments, whether it be Mother's Day, whether it be Valentine's Day, whether it be, you know, obviously New Year's, but we also created something around Halloween. We called it Yellowween. Mm -hmm. I remember around Yellowween, actually buying pumpkins in New Jersey somewhere and carving 50 pumpkins in my apartment that I would then, <laughs> I would then uh, give to restaurants with with a, a three liter bottle of champagne and and a block of dry ice uh and i would print a menu for the restaurant uh with all inclusive a glass of complimentary glass of, of clico and then on the right hand side of the menu i'd have my little story on you know the widow and then my vintage or my rose or my grand dame by the bottle and by the glass so from liquid to lip point of view it was very effective. I mean, it didn't cost me, maybe my cost was $200, $250 for you know, the roses that I would give around for Valentine's or, or the big bottles. Uh, but, you know, I touched probably 300 people during that evening in a very non-forced type of activation. I mean, it was not yeah, me that. going in front of the customers saying, would you like to try Vef Clico? It was a restaurateur actually offering a menu. And promoting the brand on my behalf, my behalf. I love that, especially the the hustle. I can imagine you carving in your New York apartment fifty <laughs> pumpkins and making a disaster. Like, what am I doing here? You should have <laughs> seen what it was like when we grew the business and the promotions, and we went to roses only, and we had eight thousand roses to pack <laughs> into three cars. See, that that's the hustle that I want people to know about now, because so many people want to start a brand and not put in that effort. 
right now. And yeah. I love hearing about the how you really need to do and what you really need to put in there to build it. I'm but, printing menus alone. I had to yeah. go to the chefs. The chef had to give me the menus. I had to print the menu properly. I mean, all that stuff takes a lot of work, but it's very cost effective. It's just a lot of sweat equity into making these things happen. Just like, you know, we, we did this Bastille Day tournament around a game in France called Pétanque, which is our version of Bachi. It's played with metal balls. Uh, and I started in New York in front of Provence restaurant on McDougal Street, if you recall that place, uh, a little Pétanque tournament for the trade. And the first year we had 14 people. The second year we had 30 people. The third year we had 180 players. I had every top restaurant in New York City playing pétanque and having a great day on Bastille Day. And it cost me five cases of champagne for the toast and a lot of work in setting up the street, managing the event. And we took that event from New York and we brought it to seven markets. And, and that way we were able to you know, connect with the trade with a very simple activation that didn't cost us a fortune. No, I love hearing that. So, you know, continue on your journey because I want to be respectful of your time here. You get through with the Clico Inc. team, mm -hmm. year 2000 comes around and you make a change, right? A pretty big change. Where'd you yeah. end up going? I ended up joining a group of investors that purchased Mum and Perrier Jouet Champagne from Seagram. So this is when Seagram's kind of dismantled and sold its basically, you know, wine and spirits portfolio. And these guys saw an opportunity and they wanted to bring on board someone who understood you know, the champagne industry and, and the opportunity was as a sales and marketing director for North America. So I looked at it as an opportunity to grow um, and I jumped at it and uh, it was extremely fun. I got to cover more territory. I got into marketing, which, you know, I'd been on the side of marketing to some extent, but this was this was a little more deep for me. Um, mm -hmm. And it was it was it lasted two years because we sold the business to Allied Demec. Uh, but it was great for everyone, and uh, it was super fun uh, while it lasted. And at the end of my two years, I'd actually met a young Norwegian kid who wanted to start a water company. And at the time, water was becoming kind of a hot thing. And he introduced me to the brand, and there's a beautiful bottle called Voss Water. And he said, I really need someone to help me, you know, build my business. And you seem to understand what it's like to build a premium brand and you understand the distribution side of the business. And I said, I'm all in. So I jumped from champagne to sobering up with water <laughs> and hydrating. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I want to understand that decision for you. Cause for a lot of people, it's scary to not, you know, you change industries, like you're still selling something, but you really change industries. What was that mindset? What convinced you that Voss water? Cause really it was a startup. It wasn't really anything at the time you joined. Right. I was Am very I little. I mean, it was a start of distribution. So there were a couple of people who I knew who had also joined the team. The idea was not to build this water brand in uh, in retail, mm -hmm. which you know it was completely opposite to right. how you would have built a water brand. Uh, it was it was all about you know food service and and the access to food service was actually through wine and spirit distribution channel, which I understood very well. So there was something comforting about, you know, working with wine spirit distributors, most of which I already had relationships with uh, in, in building a premium water brand. And then I understood the food service business, having called on multiple restaurants, hotels, you know, national account groups and so on and so forth. So it wasn't it wasn't too daunting getting into this uh, water business. 
the issue was more, you know, how quickly can we, uh, you know, convince people to pay twice as much money for Voss water versus Pana Pellegrino or even maybe not Avion, but certainly Pana Pellegrino, which were the leading brands in the food service industry. Yeah, I remember as a person working in the hotel, it coming out and we were shocked, like, wow, what is this? Look, it's got this beautiful glass bottle and it had this look. And I think right off the bat for me, you know, when I saw that you were, had worked for Voss, every hotel I worked at, we were getting pitched Voss and you got a lot of them. So during the time you were working there. So, you know, was that really the strategy was let's get into these big resorts, let's get into these hotels, or was there something different that you had in mind? Yeah, yeah. The strategy was always we'll build it on premise, and eventually it'll trickle to the off premise. But we wanted to build a real strong foundation in the on trade, and it wasn't it wasn't easy. Uh, I mean, people love the package, but you know, convincing a hotel operator to bring in a water that's almost twice the price of what they used, you know, took some selling. And I quickly realized that uh, not being in retail actually had huge benefits because consumers who walk into a hotel and see a bottle of Voss, you know, by the night nightstand or even by the refrigerator, uh, don't have a, a price point of reference to, to go to. So for them paying, you know, $5 for a 375 glass bottle versus $4 for a Fiji or a bottle of Avion, for example, it wasn't a deterrent. And I think the operators in the hotels also enjoyed the fact that they could sell something that people couldn't purchase across the street for a dollar bottle. Yeah, it's true. And so for listeners, unfortunately for you, when you visit hotels, there's a lot of white labeling stuff that you'll never know the price of so that the operators can charge a good amount for. But Voss was a premium product and it was very good. And I loved how you had positioned them. So you know, I'd love just and you have to tell me the whole story, but just the short part of how you really you got there year one. How did you build that company up? Well, how did you get it to where it was so successful? So again, we took the same approach as Voflico. So we had four markets that we focused on, you know, Southern California, Florida, New York, and then Chicago. Uh, we had people in all those markets. Uh, actually, mostly Norwegian people at the time. Uh, we had oh, wow. beautiful, beautiful women who uh, <laughs> we referred to as the Voss ladies, uh, who uh, were very good at convincing restaurant and hotel operators to take on our brand. Uh, but it was, it was, it was more at the end about you know driving a profit story for the operator, and the profit story was really built around that you know dollar premium price over their existing brand. So, for example, if you were using Avion, for example, in a restaurant, you had a liter bottle of Avion that you were charging $8 for. Well, we would come in and say, why don't you charge 9 or $10 for a bottle of Voss? Uh, and, and on top of that, we also tried to promote um, the fact that we were an 800 ml versus a liter bottle for Avion. So 20% less in the bottle, we basically equated that to 5% more bottles sold. And you put down a piece of paper and it adds up. And at the end of the day, we were so profitable for these restaurant hotel operators that they never looked back. Um, eventually, Avion caught up to that and you know created a 750 ml bottle. Mm-hmm. But um, you know that strategy worked very, very well. But it had its 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 you know issues as well. I mean, being an 800 ml bottle in a restaurant, for example, uh, if you don't train the staff on how to pour 
the water. Well, that bottle's gone in three glasses. Yep. And the customers uh, get quite upset when they feel they're being solicited or pushed bottle of water. So we did a lot of training and we, we taught waiters how to pour false water like you would pour wine, leave the bottle on the table. Um, and then when the customers in a restaurant started getting engaged uh, in conversations around food and wine started coming out, they didn't pay attention to the bottle of water anymore. Uh, and at, at that point, I think we, we, we succeeded in not only building the brand, you know, restaurant level, but we also succeeded in driving uh, a lot more attention in, in the hospitality business and hotels, especially where, you know, our, our average hotel would generate anywhere from 250 to 500 cases a month just by having the brand in a mini bar, having it in banquet uh, and so on and so forth. Yeah, and you built it to how many millions of cases a year? So we built it over six years. We built it about two and a half million cases. You know, we, we went from, you know, being national here in the U.S. Our first national account actually was W Hotels, which was a great fit for the brand. Mm -hmm. And uh, China Grill Management on the Entree. Those were two two biggest hits in the yep. very early stages. But we built it uh, in the U.S. We expanded our distribution to Canada. And then I personally expanded distribution to the Caribbean areas of Central America. And then eventually we were in 40 countries after six years. That is amazing. Yeah, I was using it because I worked for China Grill at the Delano Hotel. So that's where <laughs> I think I really started seeing just it every day. And I yeah. became a fan of it there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you built this. You had a great success with Voss. And then you have another kind of change. What? What led up to that? So I had a different view on how to build a business around Voss Water. I, I actually was more interested in continuing what we're doing and looking at partnering up with other brands to let that could leverage basically our distribution platform. Uh, and this was a time when brands like uh, Fever Tree were just launching. And mm -hmm. we actually had a conversation with Fever Tree. I think it was in the you know, mid 2000, you know, 2005, 2006, they were trying to do the same thing with tonic water. Uh, and we had conversations with a number of liquor brands that were looking to launch, uh, basically leveraging our distribution platform. And I felt that was, that was really interesting, but you know, the board wanted to really pursue the retail channel. So, you know, that's the direction we took and we went into retail and had a couple, couple false starts. Um, and at that point, I was like, you know what, time for something new. And an opportunity came around to join a, a, a large, you know, uh, company called Remy Cointreau, which also had uh, the Edmonton brand under agency. So that was McAllen, Cardi Sarks, and Brugal. And uh, I joined Remy Cointreau as their, um, you know, CMO, which was um, a little scary at first because <laughs> I never had a pure marketing job. Um, right. And this was a much more serious company. But they were also very interested in my profile because I, I, I took marketing much more seriously from a trade marketing perspective than, uh, you know, the, 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 the above the line was important. But for me, it was all about experiential. It was about storytelling, about liquor to lip experiences. And it was not so much about having the distributors drive your business. And I joined, you know, Remy Cointreau and, and the company was really 
I, I would say it was pretty much managed by the distributors. The distributors said, we want this, and we gave them that. But we didn't really have, I think, a long-term vision on how to build the brands. Mm-hmm. And what was really interesting is I took in, took over as you know, CMO, and then the guy who was a commercial director was an ex-CMO guy. So, so we, <laughs> we had completely different roles to what we were used to. But our offices were across from each other. And, you know, we, we often chatted about, you know, what do you think we should do about this? And what do you think we should do about that? But I was also very engaged with my team from the very beginning of every project that we took on. And that was somewhat new to them because, you know, we, we, we would have a brief. Uh, I would be involved in the very early stage of that brief. I would be involved in the initial discussions. I would be involved in creative side of decision making and and i guess the teams were not used to that they were used to like you know driving something through an agency for example right and then going to the head of marketing and saying this is what we've got well i said no i'd rather we, we start right from the very beginning so that we don't have to waste three months to talk about what you've got because if i don't yeah. agree with you on that we're gonna have to start over <laughs> No, I like that, right? So you get involved at the beginning. And so were you doing that for all the brands or was it just overall kind of vision? Well, we did a lot of stuff there. Uh, first, it was about three months of complete reorg. Um, then, you know, we started looking at things by channel instead of looking at them by brand. Mm-hmm. So our view was, you know, we, we have to look at it as a company and not as separate brands within the company. So if you were Mount Gay Rum, they had a brand manager and ambassadors for Mount Gay Rum. If you were, you know, Remy, Remy Martin, they had brand managers and ambassadors for Remy Martin. I said, forget about it. Right. We're just going to have uh, a channel strategy. So our focus is, you know, we're going to go after the multicultural channel. We're going to go after the white tablecloth channel. We're going to go after bars channel, bar channel. We're going to go after hospitality channel. And we will have people who specialize in these channels who will be versed, well-versed on all of our brands. And, you know, if you're calling in a multicultural channel, it's most likely that you're going to be more focused on, you know, Remy Martin. But, you know, we still want you to go out and uh, sell Mount Gay, and we still want you to go out and sell our champagne portfolio, and we still want you to talk about McAllen. We just don't want you to just be talking about Remy Martin. Uh, Whereas, you know, if you were talking to the bar channel, the focus was probably more Cointreau because that was, you know, the great compliment to Margarita and and Champagne and, you know, Remy Martin, maybe for certain channels, but for the most part, Remy Martin was maybe more about Louis XIII. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that's how we kind of broke down uh, the team. Uh, So we aligned very closely with the sales organization. We built... Uh, a bartender team, and uh, I brought on board this guy who basically put a team of five people together against our five key markets. So that was really interesting. We also started working on a lot of experiential uh, platforms. So if you recall, McAllen actually started something called Taste McAllen, which was started in the early 2000s. It was extremely successful. It was about 50% of the total budget for McAllen. And it was all about education, liquid to lips, and 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 referrals. Um, and what they found is that if you get someone to really 
fall in love with your brand, they will tell seven other people of which two people will eventually fall in love with your brand and so on and so forth. And it's a slow way to build a brand, but it's, you know, the most impactful way to build a brand when people become completely, you know, loyal. <laughs> yes. Well, I think you have, you know, before we jump into what you're, you're in your consulting, but you were, you built something in Louis the Thirteenth. You kind of mentioned it, but at every bar that I've worked at, because I've worked in luxury hotels, that was the item you had to have, and it was centrally displayed in this beautiful box. Can you just tell me a little bit about behind the scenes on that brand? Because selfishly, I just want to know how you all push that and position that in, internally. Yeah. So the challenge, um, the challenge was uh, not so much about driving more volume; it was more about driving, you know, more profit. And so when I joined the company, uh, Louis XIII was about $2,000 retail. When I left after three years, it was $3,000 retail. So we took a $1,000 bottle jump. Yet our volume, I think our volume with that three-year period was about 10% up. So, uh, I mean, that's, that's pretty incredible. You're going to say, yeah. how did you do that? So I had a team of five Louis XIII ambassadors, or mm -hmm. actually they were our luxury ambassadors because they also managed our champagne portfolio and they also yep. managed McAllen, but their focus is really Louis the 13th. And so we had um, these different platforms that we developed with the help of some agencies. Um, one was called a legacy program. Uh, so we would invite very high net worth individuals to come and experience Louis the 13th in a very unique setting with an ambassador leading presentation. I, I mean, it was it was incredible. We would do this. We, we built a theater inside of the house or inside of a loft in New York where we would sit 25 people. There would be an hour, you know, story about the brand and then the lights would go off, a uh, curtain would go up and then the ambassador was standing next to a Tiersone, which is a large cast that we use in, in, in Cognac. And, and then people would be invited to come down and taste the liquid and i mean i see people with tears in their eyes and then the curtain would go down we'd talk about the bottle and then we started doing these programs in restaurants with the ambassadors uh it was called the perfect pour program so it was all about giving consumers the ability to sample louis the 13th you know at a fraction of uh, the cost of a you know two ounce glass so we had a half an ounce and an ounce pour shot mm -hmm. uh, with different price points. And we built these beautiful displays around the bars and we focused again on the right accounts. We educated and incentivized the staff and so on and so forth. And, and we sold a lot of bottles. <laughs> um, you know, just a legacy platform alone. Every time we did one of these events, it paid for itself. I mean, we probably sold three, four bottles every event we did. It's amazing. Uh, yeah. I just... For fun, there's a guy on Miami Beach, and we don't know his real name, but he refers himself as the Wolf. And we know when he walks into any bar in Miami Beach, he orders an entire bottle and just sits with it. And that's what he does. And we see him come in. We know exactly what he looks like, but he won't tell us his, his real name. But we call him the Wolf. So on Miami Beach, if the Wolf is listening, you, uh, he's got to have a strong liver if he can drink that ball uh, on his own. <laughs> yeah, and he just he sits there for the entire day and gives out shots to people, and he like holds okay. court. You know, he does his thing. So it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, but anyhow, you then make a change into some, you know, in the world of consulting and you worked with great brands like SoulCycle and New World Spirits and Illegal Mezcal, but it's a big jump to make, right? You were always employed by a company and then you decide to kind of hop out 
on your own. How did that come? Yeah, so, you know, Remy had kind of run its course. They wanted me to move abroad, and uh, my family or my wife certainly wasn't ready to do that. We had uh, you know, young kids at the time, and we, we opted to, you know, stay here in New York. And um, that led to my consulting career, which... Uh, you know, on consultancy side, you're always chasing the next opportunity. Um, so I leveraged the fact that I had this great background in building premium brands to, you know, start talking to premium brands and eventually landed a few gigs here and there. Um, it's something with Illegal Mescal, uh, which was, you know, launching really in, in, in the early, you know, 2013s. Uh, put a little money into that brand as well, which was good, uh, or I hope. Uh, (laughs) uh, I got involved in projects that, um, you know, SoulCycle would try to do a a, a private label water using, you know, the SoulCycle platform as as the brand. So we were looking to launch SoulWater. But that never really came to fruition, but it was an attempt. and then I got involved in, you know, consulting for six months on different projects with the companies here and there and got involved in uh, a coconut water project, which is more of a reorg type of straw project, which wasn't really all that fun. And then I got involved in some uh, whiskey projects, uh, Irish whiskey projects and gin projects. And then that kind of led to where I am today, which is, uh, you know, trying to continuing the consultancy side of the business, but trying to build a platform uh, at a national level uh, that would basically, instead of being an importer, we'd basically be a brand builder around five or six brands uh, that kind of complement each other. I love that. So tell me more about that. So now you've really focused in on what you want to do. So what does that mean to be a brand builder? What, how do you envision this going? Because you have some great brands that you're working with already. Right. So I'm currently working on two brands, well, actually three brands. One, one was a year mission, which is about to expire, which was a launch of a Prosecco brand mm-hmm. uh, called De La Vite. And then I've got uh, a brand called Howlerhead. So I'm working closely with this gentleman, Simon Hunt, who was the ex-global CEO for William Grant, who called me last year in a panic um, because he needed some support on the commercial side of the business. He was based in the UK. So I brought in a partner who I've known for a very long time, uh, Paolo Domenighetti, and he and I took on that brand and managed the commercial side of the business for Howlerhead. Uh, amazingly, we have no feet on the street. It's just both of us you know, managing the commercial side and working closely with a national account guy, which we brought on board and uh, our marketing team, but it's going very well. That brand is trending towards 100,000 cases in its second year. We've also got, you know, great celebrities behind the brand with Dana White and the Endeavor Group. And then uh, we're working on a project on an Irish whiskey uh, brand called Proclamation. And, uh, and that project is exciting because the people behind it have about $350 million worth of inventory. That's a good amount. Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's good. So we have the ability to do a lot of stuff from, uh, you know, bulk to private label to building the Proclamation brand, which is a beautiful brand, by the way, uh, to building another brand that they've also launched called Grace O'Malley. Uh, and then we're looking at uh, potentially uh, bringing on board a tequila brand, 
which we're in discussions with. We're also looking at uh, a rum brand and we're also looking at a couple RTD projects. Uh, so, you know, with that in mind, you know, we would have five or six different brands on the same portfolio. And the idea is to leverage a relationship we have with our existing distribution platform to manage the distribution piece with five brands under one portfolio, which the distributors love, by the way, because the distributors would rather work with one person around five brands mm-hmm. versus five different people. Uh, and for the brands, it's exciting because on the overhead piece, which is also part of the expansion of this concept, is you know we intend to bring on you know four to five different market managers who would really be. Uh, focused on the building of the brand, not the distributive management piece of the business. And and those people eventually would be a shared resource for these five or six brands, which means that as a young startup, you wouldn't have to lay out $150,000 for every for employee that you bring yeah. on board. That's a great way to do it. And so if you had a family member, let's say, you know, your, your niece or nephew come and say, Uncle Philippe, I want to start my brand. Right. What advice are you giving them as just a startup? Because there's so many people out there like that. But if they were your family member, what are you telling them? Well, that's a good question. First thing is you you have to be different. So packaging has to stand out. Uh, the story has to stand out. The liquid has to stand out. You have to have a very good understanding of the competitive environment that you plan on getting into or competing against. Uh, you have to have a very good understanding of all of your costs. So many people make uh, launch brands without having any idea of, you know, what price point they want to be at, what their cost of goods really are, because there's a lot of things hidden in your actual cost of goods. Uh, you know, what it's going to take in terms of uh, trade and, you know, consumer support to build these brands. So we're, we're there to advise these people on, you know, what it's going to take for them to go out and properly build a brand from, you know, the price point to the distribution, to the budgets, to the overheads. And, and, um, that, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of it. We, we don't, we don't really like to get engaged with brands that are just me too brands. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we prefer getting engaged with brands that have the financial resources to, build the brand and make things happen. Uh, And we like to, you know, build brands with people who we enjoy working with. That sounds great. I think that's, you know, great advice. So I appreciate that, Uncle Philippe. Uh, (laughs) You know, so now you've been around the world. You've worked with some amazing companies. If you could go back to young Philippe landing in New York at 22 years of age, and he was starting out today in this industry that you've grown in, what advice would you give to young Philippe? I would say it's, 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 first of all, do something that you want to do and that you're going to enjoy. If you're getting in this business just because you want to make a buck, that's, that's not the business you want to be in. Uh, I mean, this is not an easy business and it just doesn't happen overnight. I mean, you know it from the hospitality business. Working in a hotel business is tough. I have a lot of friends in hospitality. I mean, it's tough. Uh, the hours are very demanding. Uh, you know, as you start moving up uh, in the ranks, you might have to relocate. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not for everybody. And it's the same in our business. I mean, if you think that managing a distributor is going to get you uh, somewhere, you're wrong. Distributors 
contrary to the very early stages of my career, don't build brands. They distribute. Uh, and they focus on you know, the brands that make them money. They focus on Pernod Ricard. They focus on Diageo. They focus on Wet Hennessy. They focus on Bacardi. But you come in as a young brand. you got to do it all on your own. So you got to be ready for that. Um, and, and going back to my early Clicquot days, it's all about focus. It's all about never giving up. It's all about daring to be different. It's all about thinking out of the box. It's all about building relationships. Uh, it's all about hitting the streets. I mean, that's what it takes. Um, and if you don't have that, you know, it's tough. You could have a great idea. You could have a great celebrity. That could be helpful. You could strike the right brand at the right time. And it's been done. I'm not saying that it can't happen. Uh, social media has changed everything. Uh, the way we communicate with consumers today is very different from the way we communicated with consumers a long time ago. I still think that for premium brands, storytelling, liquid to lip type of experiences are you know, critical because consumers ultimately want to be associated with brands that look great, that taste great, that have good stories, that have a great celebrity behind them. But it's not, it's not easy. I think that's great advice for anybody listening. You have so many good nuggets in there for someone just to, to go off of because there are so many people who have that dream and a great idea, but just don't know how to execute. So I think listening to Philippe is, is great here. So if somebody wants to connect with you, Philippe, but you know, how, what's the best place for them to reach you? So my email is um, P-R-O-E-D-E-R-E-R, number two at gmail.com. So P-Roder2 at gmail.com. And then I will leave it at that. <laughs> Perfect. We'll leave it at that. We don't or need LinkedIn, LinkedIn, you can check me out on LinkedIn. Yes. Feel free to you know send me a quick note on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to answer. Yeah, and I can tell you, Philippe is just a great guy. I met him it's almost like, like a year ago, it seems like. But mm -hmm. it was great to meet you here in Miami, and I hope we get to meet up again when you're down here again. But Philippe, I appreciate you so much. I'm very grateful for you to spend this time with me. I know how busy you are. Um, and thank you once again for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Steve. Great talking to you. This podcast is brought to you by Biscayne Coffee. Biscayne Coffee was founded with a giving spirit and a big idea to enjoy delicious coffee roasted in Miami while helping save Biscayne Bay and the animals that live there. As a former food and beverage director, I can assure you these are some of the best quality beans on the planet. 10% of every coffee sold is donated to nonprofits to help preserve Biscayne Bay for all to enjoy. Visit BiscayneCoffee.com today and use promo code MENTOR at checkout to save 10% on your first order. Drink good coffee and create a good outcome. This podcast is a Hospitality.fm production.